Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Troubling stories have been emerging from Xinjiang province in China, where members of the Uyghur Muslim minority are interned and being re-educated. But the Communist Party is also intimidating Uyghur exiles around the world. And last month, a restored painting of The Last Supper went on display in Florence. That wouldn't be unusual if not for the fact that it's the first known Last Supper painted by a woman we examine the legacy of the pioneering artist Plauti Lanelli. First up, though. Yesterday, the House of Representatives voted for the first time on how to proceed with the Democrats' impeachment investigation into President Donald Trump. And today, the House takes the next step forward as we establish the procedures for open hearings conducted by the House Intelligence Committee so that the public can see the facts for themselves. It was a phone call that started the impeachment proceedings. In July, Mr. Trump spoke to his Ukrainian counterpart, Vladimir Zelensky. He asked that Mr. Zelensky investigate the Ukrainian dealings of Hunter Biden, the son of Democratic contender Joe Biden. An increasingly sprawling inquiry now centers on whether Mr. Trump dangled military aid to Ukraine as a quid pro quo for fulfilling that request. A number of congressional committees have been holding closed meetings, pulling at the threads of the story and amassing testimony. So far, it seems likely that the Democrat-controlled House will impeach the president and the Republican-run Senate will exonerate him. Impeachment is a political process, not a criminal one, and yesterday's vote revealed just how partisan the proceedings are likely to be. The House of Representatives formally voted yesterday to open an impeachment inquiry into Donald Trump. John Prado is our United States editor. That moves the impeachment process to the next phase. There will be public hearings. Hitherto, the hearings have been behind closed doors. We've found out what's been said through some leaks, but we don't have entirely you know, accurate records of the testimony. That testimony will be public now. And so the impeachment inquiry moves on to a different footing. The House voted almost entirely along party lines. There were two Democrats who defected. Every single Republican voted against opening the impeachment proceedings. So why has the House chosen to take this vote now? Democrats have been holding an impeachment inquiry behind closed doors in Congress. This has invited some criticism for, from Republicans about the process. You know, they've been saying that the president isn't getting due process here. This is all behind closed doors. It should be done in the open. Last week, Republicans stormed the committee rooms where impeachment proceedings were being conducted. It's through those hidden closed doors over there. Adam Schiff is trying to impeach a president of the United States behind closed doors. 
they were angry that these hearings were being held in private. Uh, we're going to go and see if we can get inside. So let's, uh, let's see if we can get in. Essentially, I think what's happened is that Republicans who are not terribly keen to defend Donald Trump on the substance of the accusation here, um, the substance being that he put pressure on the president of Ukraine to investigate Joe Biden in exchange for kind of more favorable treatment from the American government. Not too many Republicans want to stick out their necks and defend Donald Trump on that point. And so the argument has been much more about the process. You know, the process is unfair, Democrats being partisan and so forth. So what you've seen the Democrats do, I think, is respond to that and say, okay, you've criticized us for setting up the process in this way. The main criticism for Republicans had been that Democrats hadn't taken a floor vote opening an impeachment inquiry. So they've now done that. I think that weakens the kind of process arguments that Republicans have been making. And they now have to defend Donald Trump a bit more on the substance, which I think is harder for them to do. What do you mean by that? Why does it get harder once this becomes a more public procedure? Well, one of the reasons that it's going to be hard for Republicans to defend the president is that a lot of the testimony that the House has been hearing behind closed doors, has come from people within the White House. This, it's not the case that the evidence against Donald Trump is being presented by you know, political opponents. These are, by and large, people who, in many cases, Donald Trump hired to work for him uh, in the White House and who are now testifying that he essentially betrayed the national interest in his dealings with Ukraine. And so, you know, some of these witnesses are pretty hard for Republicans to paint as non-credible. One of the most powerful witnesses that the House heard from this week was Alexander Vindman, decorated army officer, Ukraine specialist who listened in on President Trump's call with President Zelensky of Ukraine and was so alarmed by what he heard that he went to see a White House lawyer to talk about it. This is a sort of figure who it's quite hard for Republicans to dismiss as you know, yet another Donald Trump opponent and never Trump. I mean, of course, there have been some Republicans, Republicans who tried that line, but it's quite hard. It doesn't play particularly well to attack you know, decorated military veterans who are quite clearly kind of patriotic and have the nation's best interests at, at heart. And, and what about the, uh, the witnesses still to come, the testimony that will now happen in, in, in fuller view? Can we expect this, this story to change much, do you think? Most significant witness Democrats are looking forward to hearing from is John Bolton, President Trump's former national security advisor who was fired fairly recently. It's clear from press reports that John Bolton was pretty horrified by the approach the president was taking to Ukraine. Again, he's one of these people who their president handpicked um, to work for him, and therefore his testimony is quite difficult for uh, Republicans in Congress to dismiss as being sort of partisan or, you know, motivated by animosity towards the president. So that will be quite significant when it comes. And so what about the timeline here? How long do you think these impeachment proceedings will last? Uh, and will it last long enough to figure strongly into next year's election, do you think? Democrats have been saying for a while that they want to wrap up the uh, impeachment proceedings in the House by the end of the year. That would mean an impeachment trial in the Senate beginning perhaps early January. I don't think it's in the interests of Mitch McConnell, the Senate majority leader, who'd have control over the process to keep that trial going on for a really long time. So I'd imagine that would wrap up fairly swiftly in January. How to defeat the presidential election? Well, you would then have an unusual situation where a president who's been impeached by the House is running for re-election. Um, 
I suppose more prosaically, I think it could have an effect on the Democratic primary, which is that the uh, impeachment trial would suck up so much oxygen and take up so much of the news cycle in the run-up to those early um, primary states, Iowa, New Hampshire, uh, that it may make it quite hard for candidates who are further down the field to break through. Um, if you are Kamala Harris, uh, Pete Buttigieg, Amy Klobuchar, it's going to be pretty hard for you to get much news coverage in January if the Senate is in the middle of uh, an impeachment trial uh, of the president. So that probably favours those who are at the top of the field at the moment, um, Joe Biden and Elizabeth Warren. John, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Jason. Two years ago, deeply troubling reports began to surface about goings-on in Xinjiang province, China. Broadcasters such as Radio Free Asia said that ordinary people were being rounded up en masse and held in camps, often for no reason other than their faith. The Chinese Communist Party is detaining and abusing more than one million Uyghur Muslims in internment camps in Xinjiang. Uyghurs are a minority ethnic group native to Western China. They're mainly Muslims and make up nearly half of Xinjiang's 22 million people. Today, hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions of Uyghurs are locked up in the province. Those who live abroad might seem to be out of harm's way, but that doesn't mean that their families are. And that is how China can keep people quiet, even outside its borders. Among those vulnerable to state intimidation are the 12 exiles who produce the Uyghur language news service of Radio Free Asia. Our China Affairs editor, Gadi Epstein, went to pay them a visit. I recently met uh, Golchera Hoja, who is a Uyghur exile uh, broadcaster for Radio Free Asia at Radio Free Asia's headquarters in Washington, D.C. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, um, too. I'm recording. Is that okay? Okay, no problem. Okay. <clears throat> she has been reporting for years on China's repressive policies against her people in Xinjiang. And Ms. Hoja told me about a phone call she received early last year. February 3rd, I received a call from our neighbor's daughter who was studying in U.S. She told me, do you know your father, mother, all your relatives get arrested because of you? Three days earlier, 25 members of her family had received phone calls from the police summoning them to police stations. And when they got there, they were detained. And they were told this is because of their relationship with Ms. Hoja, who they knew works for Radio Free Asia, which just months earlier had reported to the world on the mass internment of the Uyghurs in Xinjiang. That was the, the worst feeling in the world. The the guiltiness and the worries sometimes eating you up. I, few minutes, I couldn't figure out how to react about this news and the, what to do. Even I couldn't cry, couldn't scream, because I cannot believe how, how could Chinese government just take my elder parents? How could they do that? 
So in essence here, this is an attempt by Chinese authorities to threaten the families of exiles so as to silence even the ones who aren't in the country. That's right. Uyghur exiles in Europe, America, and other parts of the world have been pretty clearly warned not to speak about Xinjiang's new gulag. And we know that there have been repercussions as well for those who do speak out. On October 13th, there was a video that was circulated by state media in China of a Uyghur man rejecting as, quote, an outright lie, an account by American Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, that the man's sister, Zumrat Dawit, had been detained, beaten, and forcibly sterilized. Ms. Dawit's brother appears to be reading a statement. What he says is, I'm making this video clip just to tell the truth to the world. So this broadcaster that you mentioned that Ms. Hoja worked for, Radio Free Asia, has that been a particular target of this kind of, of action? Yes, absolutely. It's been operating since 1996. It's the only such outlet outside of China that broadcasts in the Uyghur language, and it absolutely pulls no punches. They report relentlessly on Xinjiang's human rights horrors. They have broken story after story about what's going on just in the recent years with the detention centers and also related policies But where is it doing its broadcasting, though? You say it's based in Washington. Yeah, it's based in Washington, but it broadcasts into Xinjiang via shortwave radio, satellite, the Internet. Surveys suggest that despite China's attempts to jam these broadcasts and block the Internet, which, of course, they do very effectively, some people in Xinjiang are still able to hear these reports. There was a survey of 300 recently departed Uyghurs in Turkey by RFA last year, and 30% of them had listened to RFA or used it, perhaps read it online, while in Xinjiang. So who's paying for for Radio Free Asia? That's the U.S. government. They get $44 million of funding. Two million of that goes to the Uyghur language service. They also broadcast in eight other languages, including Tibetan into China. And they have been operating as one of a constellation of U.S. government-funded radios since the Cold War. I mean, the Uyghur service is more recent, but uh, Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, Voice of America, these are all Cold War-era creations that are still operating. This obviously does make them vulnerable to accusations that are just a propaganda arm of the U.S. government. The RFA says it operates with editorial independence, but they do have critics even amongst some who sympathize with the weaker cause, that their stories are not rigorously reported, that they're very thinly sourced and also often melodramatic. And I think there is some truth to that. Some of the reports haven't been backed up, but many have. And they certainly helped bring global attention to these new detention centers. You know, they make hundreds of calls to Xinjiang virtually every day trying to glean information. And in the early days, they actually were able to get some Chinese authorities like police and local stations to answer some simple questions. And all of that helped scholars, foreign correspondents for Western media to report further and in more detail and more verifiably. But I imagine it must be difficult for Radio Free Asia to get people to speak out, to get beyond those thinly sourced stories. Yes, it's very difficult. You know, they make these calls in Xinjiang, but they suspect that their calls are monitored or they've got voice recognition. Very often calls drop within a minute. You know, there's a likelihood that their phones are targeted for hacking. And of course, they also don't want to get their sources into trouble either. 
Well, there are those who are afraid to speak on the other end of the line, but surely the, the RFA's reporters must be scared too. I mean, give the stories, for instance, of Ms. Hoja. Yes, at least six employees of RFA, Uyghur exiles, have a combined total of more than 40 relatives who are either in the new detention facilities, which are officially called vocational training centers, or in prison or otherwise unaccounted for. And that includes still more than 20 of Ms. Hoja's relatives. And, you know, it just weighs on them every day. It weighs on Ms. Hoja. It weighs on a man I talked to who's the deputy director of the service, Mama Chan Juma who is telling me how his three brothers are all in custody. You know, it, it, it affects on your every aspect of your life. Your psychological well-being is the first thing. Because He was talking to me about how it'll hit him at home when he's cooking for his kids a favorite dish that he used to enjoy with his brothers, or he, a song comes on that he used to listen to with his brothers. You cannot stop, you cannot hold your tears. It pours spontaneously without any warning. But I think for all of these staff, they all talked about how awful they feel that their relatives are, are suffering for their work, the guilt they feel. But they also recognize there's not much they can do besides do this work. It, it affects you. And, but you have to get up every day and come to work because if you don't write, if you don't report on these issues, Nobody would. We don't have a choice. In fact, I think they feel an almost existential responsibility to do this work. Thanks very much for joining us, Scotty. Great to be with you, Jason. This week on The Economist Asks, our interview show, my colleague Anne McElvoy speaks to former European Commission President José Manuel Barroso, who's now a chairman at Goldman Sachs. Mr. Barroso mused on whether Brexit was more like opera or free jazz and made a bold prediction about Britain's prime minister. Boris Johnson was recently in favor of Turkish not only membership, but freedom of movement of the Turkish in Europe. And as a mayor of London, he was a, a globalist, not he was never a nativist. So I think he has this instinct still. Let's see what he does afterwards, uh, if he remains prime minister, which I believe it's going to happen. You think he'll remain prime minister? I, I think we are going to have Boris Johnson for many years. Confident prediction there. To hear more, look for The Economist Asks wherever you get your podcasts. Painting is pretty huge. It's 21 foot long. Imogen White writes about arts and culture for The Economist. You can see Jesus and the 12 apostles all gathered round a table having a feast. In many ways, The Last Supper by Plautil Nanelli is a classic of the genre. It's all very elegantly laid out. There's beautiful silverware. The bowls are intricately decorated. The glasses are sparkling. But the painting is also unique. It's the earliest known version of the theme painted by a woman. And now the public can get a look. Last month in Florence, it went on display at the Museum of Santa Maria Novella for the first time, 450 years after it had been created. And why is it going on display now? 
So it's just been restored by an organisation called Advancing Women Artists, who are an American charity. The AWA has a bit of a mission to track down work by historic women artists in Italy and put money into researching those artists, restoring them and getting them on the walls so that the public can learn more about these women. So how did Nellie come to be such a successful painter? It's quite an interesting story. So she was born to a wealthy family in Florence in 1524. And she was sent to a convent when she was 14. You know, it sort of sounds a bit surprising to us, but 50% of all literate women were in convents at the time because often families didn't want to pay a dowry for their second daughter. When she was there, nuns were allowed to paint and draw as a way to ward off sloth. So unlike women who weren't in a nunnery, they could develop those skills and she became so good at it that she set up kind of like an art workshop with the other nuns and she trained them all to paint and they became so successful that the convent was self-sufficient based on their art. How is it that this is the first example of a, a Last Supper painted by a woman? Yeah, so the Last Supper was something only the best Renaissance artists attempted. It was something you did at the peak of your career. So you had to be very confident in your abilities. You had to have a lot of resources and you had to be very precise and able to follow a huge project through. She would have worked with a team of probably about eight nuns and by making this painting, they were presenting themselves as equal to other male painters of their generation. And as for the Last Suppers painted by the, the male painters of their generation, how does this work compare? So it's not perfect. The shadows sometimes kind of wander and don't match up with where they're supposed to fall. One really interesting thing is the way that the beards of the men are quite unconvincing. But if you think about that, she was a nun. She actually wasn't exposed to men. She wouldn't have seen that many beards. And she wasn't allowed to study anatomy like male artists would have been able to. So she was sort of working with her imagination, and it's understandable that it wouldn't be perfect. But it's a really remarkable painting. The colours are really rich. There's a lot of interesting detail. You can see the cuticles on the apostles' nails, the eyelashes. They're very human. There's a lot of emotion. And, and was that skill appreciated in her own time in, in the way that perhaps a, a male painter of that time would have been lauded for the work? She wouldn't have exactly been considered as an equal, but one of the real ironies is that she she was very popular. The Florentines believed that work by holy people had a special value, so they kind of brought their religiousness into their art. If you could own one of those, you could have that in your life. So she was a household name. And one really interesting detail about the painting is that in the top left-hand corner, Plotilla signed her name and she wrote, Pray for the Paintress, which was a really bold move for the time and can kind of be seen as her way of leaving her mark and making sure that she was remembered. Thank you very much for coming in, Imogen. Thanks, Jason. Thank you. 
That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. See you back here on Monday. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.